0: Good morning again. Welcome to Prairie View Christian Church. Thanks for joining us here this morning, and I will not be insulting any staff members today. At least I don't plan to. So last week we began our Christmas with Isaiah, reading from Isaiah chapter 7. And some of you may be wondering, how much can a man who lived some 750 years before Jesus have to teach us about Christmas? Well, as it turns out, it's actually quite a lot. That's because Isaiah was a prophet. So when he spoke of a baby born of a virgin called Emmanuel, God with us, Isaiah was saying more than he knew. Isaiah was not just talking about God's comfort and protection for his people during a political military crisis in his own day. He was speaking of Jesus' future arrival to address the crisis of sin for all humanity. But today we move from Isaiah 7 to Isaiah 9, which is another beloved Christmas passage. The immediate context of this passage is similar to last week. God's people in the south, the kingdom of Judah are toiling under the wicked king Ahaz. God's people in the north, the kingdom of Israel, are toiling under the wicked king Pekah. Meanwhile, the wicked king of Assyria is sitting back and plotting how he might overtake both of them. Now, you know, with all this talk of wicked kings, it kind of makes you wonder, will there ever be a good king? Maybe Isaiah 9 can give us an answer. So open up to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. Feel free to use the Bibles here if you need to. Take it home if you don't have one, or follow along on the screen. But before we go further, let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we have together to worship you, to honor you, to glorify you. Uh, Lord, I pray for... This morning, uh, that what we say and what we do here uh, would do exactly that, uh, that it would honor you and glorify you. I pray that you would be with us as we hear from your word. Uh, help us be receptive to what your word has to say. Help us treasure and value your word uh, as the gift that it really is. Uh, I pray that we would come to your word with great humility and awe and gratitude uh, for this incredible gift that You've given us uh, so much information about who you are. Uh, thank you that we have this so readily available to us. And I pray that we would make even better use of it moving forward. And Lord, thank you that uh, these passages we read in Isaiah are not just about stories from a long time ago, uh, like Joshua mentioned. Uh, but rather, these stories mean something, mean everything uh, to us right now. And I pray that would become apparent today uh, as we read about wicked kings from 750 B.C. Uh, I pray that we would think about our own need for a king uh, and how you've provided that king at Christmas. So, Lord, again, be with us as we pay attention to your word. Uh, Help us pay attention to your word and not just know it in our heads, but apply it to our hearts and live it out in our words and in our actions. We glorify you, we love you, we ask this all in Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week, Isaiah prophesied that Israel in the north, which was one of the nations threatening Judah in the south, would soon be defeated. And more specifically, this defeat would be an act of God's judgment for Israel's sin. As a result of their rebellion against him, God would allow his people to be invaded by Assyria and taken into exile. Now, where had Israel gone wrong? For just a glimpse at the problem, look at Isaiah chapter 8, verse 19. It says that they were inquiring of mediums and necromancers who chirp and mutter. Instead of inquiring, of their God. In short, Israel had become just like the idolatrous nations around them, rather than serving as a beacon of God's holiness in the land as they were called to. And if you really want to fit in with the nations around you that bad, be careful, because God may just let you get taken over by them. And as verse 22 states... This will be a time of distress, thick darkness, gloom, and anguish for Israel. The fall to Assyria would be nothing short of disaster. However, Israel's defeat would not be permanent. God would be faithful to his people even though they were unfaithful to him. This time of suffering, condemnation, and sorrow would not last forever. God would not hide his face from Israel for all time. One day, dawn would come. One day, Israel wouldn't be homeless and hungry anymore. One day, they would have reason for hope. And it all revolves around a coming king. of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Some day, God's people in Israel, with particular attention paid to the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, would be delivered from their oppression. Those two regions were the furthest north you could get. As a result, they would be the first to fall when Assyria invaded. But eventually, God's people who walked in such thick darkness would see a great light. And somehow, the way of the sea, the land of Galilee, would have something to do with it. Your Bible may say Galilee of the nations or even Galilee of the Gentiles at the end of verse one. That seems to imply that not just Israel, not just Judah, not just the descendants of Abraham, but all people from all nations will benefit from this coming king. The question, of course. Who is he? Who is this promised king? After the wicked king Ahaz died, his son Hezekiah would take the throne. And Hezekiah was a good king. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David, his father, had done. Now admittedly, David was not perfect, but he was still the gold standard of kings. If you're following in David's footsteps, you're on the right track. Some people may have thought that Hezekiah was the fulfillment of this promise in Isaiah 9. The good king is finally here. But Hezekiah would not live up to those lofty expectations of Isaiah 9. And when you think about it, who could? I mean, come on, look again at some of those titles that we've read. Wonderful Counselor. This new king must possess an uncommon, God-given wisdom. The kind possessed by God himself. As Isaiah twenty-eight, twenty-nine tells us, the Lord of hosts is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. The good king needs to be like that. Or how about that second title, Mighty God? What Jewish king in his right mind would claim to have that sort of divine power? That king would be committing blasphemy. To call yourself Mighty God is to place oneself on equal footing with God. And that's something that no human king has the right to do. Isaiah ten twenty one describes God, not man, with those exact same words. But take a look at that third title, which may be the most daunting. Everlasting Father. This king must embody God's tender care for his children. All of them. How can a mere man do something like that? And finally, this new king would be Prince of Peace. The word peace in that verse is the Hebrew word that you may have heard before, Shalom. It gets at the idea of wholeness and completeness, righteousness and justice, and even implies God's presence. Now, interestingly, while the first three titles here, Usually refer to God in the Bible. The word prince never does. In the pages of scripture, princes are humans. So it's almost like this king, whoever he is, will be both God and man at the same time. So what king could possibly live up to those standards? If David couldn't, and Hezekiah couldn't, then who could? Maybe the king promised in 2 Samuel 7 would be up to the task. That passage gives us a promise from God to David that one of his descendants would take the throne and rule forever. In order for the promised king to live up to the standards of Isaiah 9, He must be the Messiah himself, the anointed savior of God's people. One of the founding principles of our nation was not having a king. Nevertheless, we Americans still seem to have a deep fascination with royalty. No kid wants to be president of the mountain. We want to be king of the mountain, queen of the mountain. Gossip magazines, movie producers, paparazzi still flock to the royal family of our former ruling nation for all kinds of juicy material. We still like to imagine crowns and castles in our fairy tales. So while we may not actually want a king, politically speaking, we're still fascinated by the concept of royalty. And I don't know about you, but if we could find a king like the one described in Isaiah 9, the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, then that king might be worth a shot. Well, the good news of Christmas is that we don't have to look very far to find that king. Turn to Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1. We read there. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east, for we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ, that's the Greek word for Messiah, was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So word on the street, reaching as far as the pagan nations of the east, is that there is a new king in town. Now how do these mysterious Gentile wise men know that? Well, they saw a great light, a miraculous star. And where was this royal baby born? Bethlehem. The city of King David's birth. And who is this baby's acting father? Joseph. A descendant of King David. And when these wise men arrive at the baby's crib, they don't just honor him like any other king. They fall down and worship him. Meanwhile, Herod The current supposed king over God's people doesn't react to this astounding news in the same way. Let's just say he's less than thrilled. Herod was not a rightful descendant of David. He was already known for his paranoia and insecurity concerning his throne, even to the point of executing his own family members. So Herod tried to have this rival king killed. But by God's grace, with the help of a few angelic visions and dreams, the child is spared. And his parents eventually settle in Galilee, which I think we've heard that somewhere before. We've heard it in Isaiah 9. Luke chapter 1, verses 32 and 33 tell us that God will give this baby the throne of his father, David. And that he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. John one one through five tells us that Jesus is one with God, the light of men that shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And Matthew 4,12 through seventeen inform us that Jesus set up shop in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun, And Naphtali, a direct quotation of Isaiah 9. Do you think that's all a coincidence? I don't think so. When you put it all together, we see that Jesus is the king promised in Isaiah 9, he is the light in the darkness. He is the Wonderful Counselor. He is the Mighty God. He is the Everlasting Father. He is the Prince of Peace that Israel and the entire world has been waiting for. As we said last week, the crisis that Jesus came to address is far worse than invasion or exile by Assyria or any other foreign power then or now. The crisis oppressing humanity Every single one of us is sin. Sin is the true source of our distress, gloom, and anguish. As long as our sin is unaddressed, we will be walking in thick darkness, no matter how free we think we might be. Our only hope Our only deliverance, both in this life and the next, is a good king. Better yet, the good king of Isaiah 9. The great king. The eternal king. Greater than Ahaz, greater than Hezekiah, and even greater than David. The king who somehow, someway, is both God and man. At Christmas, we celebrate that this king has come. This king is here. We rejoice that dawn has broken through the thick darkness of our fallen world. We thank God that while sin and Satan and death haven't been finally defeated yet, victory was guaranteed. At Jesus' death and resurrection. And you can't have those things apart from Jesus' birth. And when that happens, Jesus will not arrive in the humble surroundings of Bethlehem, but in all his power and glory. This time there will be no rumors, no confusion about who he is or where he is. It will be beyond debate. This time, Jesus will not be on the run from a wicked king trying to kill him. The wicked kings of the earth will tremble before him. Every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that Jesus Christ is king. To the glory of God the Father. And all who believe in him will be saved. So are you ready for this king to arrive? That question is far more important than whether or not you're ready for the Christmas party at work. Or whether you're ready for the gift giving on Christmas morning or whether you're ready for all the deadlines you have to meet before you take a few days off. Are you ready for this king to arrive? Because every single one of us, in one way or another, will hit our knees when he comes. We will either hit our knees in joy and worship, or hit our knees with trembling. Traditionally, Advent has been recognized as a time of repentance, watching and waiting. It's a season of preparation for what we know will happen in the future. That is Jesus's triumphant return. So now is as good a time as ever to remember that we have only one king. That's Jesus Christ. At the end of the day, every other loyalty... Every other commitment, every other piece of obedience belongs to him above every other so-called power, ruler, or authority. He deserves our worship, and he alone. So by God's grace, and by the Holy Spirit who lives within us, May our words, our deeds, our thoughts, our feelings, our priorities, our lives display our love for the true King. The only King who has died on a cross for our sins and reconciled us to God. As mentioned earlier, our nation doesn't have a human King. And that's probably for the best. We've seen and heard all the stories of corruption and abuse that kings and queens can be guilty of. The Bible's not shy of the shortcomings of human royalty. All of the merely human kings in scripture prove to be sinners in the end. And as the old saying goes, the best of men are men at best. When we try to be our own kings, when we try to live as though we have no king at all, Or when we place all of our hopes in worldly kings. It always goes horribly wrong. Ask Adam and Eve. Ask the Israelites throughout the Old Testament. Read a history book. Worldly rulers, powers, and authorities might be able to save you from a lot of things. But they can't save you from your sin. For that, we need a very different kind of king. And Christmas reminds us, Isaiah 9 reminds us, that we don't have to look very far to find him. We already have the only king we'll ever need. The only king worth having. God himself. We have seen a great light. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The king has come, and the king will come. And when he does, he will reign forever. His name is Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of God, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and prince of peace. That's a king who is worthy of your worship. So may we all bow down before him this Christmas. And more importantly, may we submit to his righteous rule every day of the year. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the king who you have sent us. Thank you that you have fulfilled the promise of Isaiah 9. Back in the Old Testament, we read that the Israelites wanted a king and they clamored for a human king. They wanted to be like the nations around them. And in clamoring for that human king, they indirectly rejected you as their king. And that went incredibly awry. All kinds of chaos and destruction and heartache and violence comes when we reject you as our king. Really, the Garden of Eden is a matter of rejecting you as our king. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us repent of that sin and help us recognize that you are our true king and that by serving you and loving you and worshiping you, we find our greatest joy, we find our greatest purpose, we fulfill fulfill the calling when you return as king over all creation. I pray that we would recognize your glory. I pray that we as believers who have already professed you as our king with our mouths would honor you better with our lives. That our worship wouldn't just be in word, but our worship would be in deed as well. I pray that this Christmas, as we have so many other things to worry about, so many things to focus on, so many things that demand our attention and vie for our time and fight for our passions and desires and loves. I pray that we would give you the love that you deserve, that you would have our loyalty above everything else, that you alone would get our worship, and that we would welcome you as the king that you are, And that we would find our joy and find our peace in obedience and love and faithfulness to you. Thank you that the good King has come. Thank you that we have been set free. And I pray that you would find us faithful when your good King comes again. We love you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.